The NBA playoffs are here, and we have you covered with the Ringer NBA show hosted by Chris Vernon. Tuesdays, Thursdays, and Fridays throughout the postseason, you can hear the Ringer's NBA experts, media members, coaches, and players breaking down all the action. Make sure to subscribe to the Ringer NBA show on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get podcasts. Hey guys, uh, thank you for listening to The Watch today. We just want to mention the Double Down Book Club is back. We recently did Zoo Station by David Downing. We are doing Annihilation by Jeff Vandermeer. Uh, so please go check that out as well. We'll be doing another book club episode in about a month. So you have plenty of time to read it. And for the next couple of months, Andy and I will largely be discussing Leftovers and Fargo uh, in some capacity most weeks. Uh, both shows just began their third seasons this week. So Fargo comes on Wednesday. Uh, Leftovers happened on Sunday. Please check them out. Uh, it'll make the podcast that much more enjoyable to watch the shows that we're talking about. Make sure you share the podcast with a friend of yours that likes TV, film, or pop culture. Today we're talking about Star Wars, Kendrick Lamar, Girls, and Leftovers. Let's get going. I need support staff to clear the room. Stand up and walk now. Hello and welcome to The Watch. My name is Chris Ryan and I am an editor at TheRinger.com and joining me in the studio... I got, I got, I got Andy Greenwald! Woo, it's good to be back. Hi, man. Hey, listen, a lot happened since I was here last week. Thanks to the entire staff of The Ringer for filling in for me. I appreciate that. You got that. it. You got it. Um, nice, nice episode there. I did, seems like you had a good time. Yeah, very, very Father John Misty got mentioned. Yeah, so you talked about all the stuff I hate. Yeah. I appreciate that. Yeah, yeah. But another thing happened last week. We have a big show, so we, we got to get into it. Yeah, let's real quick. Uh, Leftovers is back. Leftovers and girls. We'll be talking about the end of girls, but first we're going to talk about Star Wars and Kendrick. But But let's hear your personal anecdote. While I was away, you revealed a new side of yourself to the internet. Did I? You know, when we started at Grandland, we were writing, we were podcasting. People are like, is is this all there is? Is there more you want to do? And, you know, I, I, it turns out I want to do a little bit of, little scribbling for TV proper. And I started to work on that. What I think people didn't realize is you're on camera talent. (laughs) You're an actor. You guys at Ringer Films, yeah, the Ringer Films, Ringer Studio, Pictures, actually. Yeah, um, I don't go on the internet, but I, I've heard good things. Um, put together a uh, trailer based on the trailer, shot for shot remake of Moneyball, called Mori Ball, mm-hmm. and starring as Daryl Mori as Brad Pitt, as Brad Pitt. Excuse me, obviously, <laughs> the Houston Rockets uh, general manager is young Chris Ryan. Yeah, and. I gotta say, pathos in this performance. Thanks, man. I really tried to uh, put myself in the position of Brad Pitt as Daryl Morey. Like, really put myself in no. that headspace. The way you threw the chair, it's just, it's just. <laughs> that goosebumps. chair actually is like used, so I didn't really yeah. want to destroy it. No, no. Ringer Pictures is working on it for sort of like a Bloomhouse, right? Like, kind <laughs> <Yeah>. of budget <laughs> thing. Right. It's, it's like a small investment, but huge rewards. <laughs> I just want to know, and I think that people want to know, like, what's what's next from Young Chris? Like, what. How do you want to use your ability? I was thinking that, you know, I liked silence, but there's a lot more to do in yeah. the in the 17th century Portuguese priest space, the Jesuit space. Yes. And I was thinking, you yes. know, there's a lot more for me to do. Like, I feel like I could step on the Jesus face stone and yeah. be like, silence. A shot-for-shot shot remake of the silence trailer with you <laughs> in all of the roles, yes. including the rain and the droopy pine trees. I think there's real potential here. I I, I just want everyone to check this out. I do think it's fantastic. I love seeing this this side of you. It's impassioned. Thank you. It's very exciting. Um, Last question. Did you cast yourself? I did. Yeah. That's the thing that's cool about writing the thing is you can just be like starring. Do you have any other tips you want? Like any other things you want to like preview that you're going to be doing next? Any other roles? Like do you have a 
win it all type gambling movie that you're seeing yourself oh, God, in. I wish, man. Did you watch Win It? We, we've talked about Win It All. That's we, right. There's a podcast on the Ringer Podcast <laughs> Network. I don't know it's if you listened to it. It's been kind of a long ten days. Uh, if I could cast myself in anything, mm-hmm. I would probably cast myself in a Star Wars movie. Wow. First of all, bullshit. But second of all, <laughs> great segue. And it proves you should cast yourself as the host of this podcast. Um, Andy, The Last Jedi. I only know one truth. It's time for the Jedi to end. Yeah. Uh, that's, the, that's the name of this Star Wars episode. And uh, they've started, actually, I think they, they dropped the episode numerical title. No, this is episode eight. Okay, so they're going to say eight. There was just recently news from the Star Wars Celebration Conference that they're going to probably make more than nine. George Lucas's original vision for this whole yeah. jam was going to be nine movies. Yeah, um, that's not a surprise. That they're going to make more. Yeah, yeah. No, they make a lot of money. Can you imagine <laughs> if they got to the end of the Trevor one and they were just like, "We're good, peace. Let's go out on a high note." How much respect would we have for them, though? I mean, not much, because I'm just like, keep making Star Wars movies, dipshit. Um, People do seem to like them. uh, So this one, it's interesting. I think that um, I would say that from my perspective, this was greeted with... It's a teaser. It didn't have the same impact as the Force Awakens teaser because the Force Awakens teaser was literally the first time we had seen this universe Mm -hmm. in years. Also, all our old chums were back in it. Exactly. But this time around, I feel like uh, it's a, it's been greeted with like a little bit more like, cool, cool. Like, I can't wait for the real trailer and especially can't wait for Christmas. Well, I think that this is a – first of all, the trailer is great fun. It's exciting. But it is a little worrisome that what, what, what Star Wars has is special and unique and obviously hugely profitable. They have decided they are going to give us a new Star Wars movie every year, mm-hmm. whether it is um, uh, in the canon of the you know, traditional – trilogies or whatever goes on beyond that along the spine of these characters like we have coming with The Last Jedi or if it's these offshoot movies like Rogue One and the upcoming Han Solo movie. The worst thing that can happen is if they start to feel rote. If we start to greet them the way we greet Marvel trailers, which is we're happy to see them. Yeah. We're excited to see our pals and to see lightsabers, but we get this That's every year. That's a good year. point. What does it feel like when there's a Star Wars movie every year? The, the feeling especially of... Uh, Force Awakens, but to a, a lesser degree with Rogue One because it was back in Darth Vader world again, or at least Darth Vader timeline, was magic. I mean, we talked about this when we raved about the Force Awakens trailer, was th- that it keyed in on what distinguished this franchise from all the other franchises, which was a sense of grandeur mm-hmm. and imagination. Um, and I think if you start to to leech that from it, it becomes a little becomes worrisome for them, as a, both creatively and financially. That said, this is our man Ryan Johnson, um, directing this movie, by far, I would say the most interesting director um, in this trilogy. Yep. Uh, visually interesting, and I'm very hopeful that he he brings some flair to it. And I will say that he did because here's the thing: here's all I want from these blockbusters these days, or the trailers. Show me something beautiful, man. Show me something big. Show me something beautiful. Don't show me Manhattan getting destroyed again. Seen it. Yeah. Actually, feel like I see it in my nightmares every night now. I'm glad that now. Star Wars hasn't done much with Manhattan. They're I really appreciate that. Yeah. Uh, so what I'm saying <laughs> is that shot of the speeders with the red smoke on the sand, I don't know what that is. Maybe that's something you know about from the expanded universe novels that you like to read in your spare time. Don't look at me, dog. 
I just thought that's a beautiful image. Yeah. I've not seen that image before. So I have. That. I have seen that image before. Actually, yeah. it's in uh, it's in Godzilla. It's like the halo jump smoke coming off the back of the guys who are jumping down out of the planes to the most fight recent Godzilla. Godzilla. Yeah, uh, which is like Damn. not a knock, but also interesting because Gareth uh, it was also directed Rogue One. Yeah. Um, it's funny, like what some of the uh, people have been talking about how the 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 Last Jedi trailer is like literally beat for beat the same as the Force Awakens you can see trailer. Them play next to each other. I actually thought that uh, the beginning of this trailer reminded me a lot of uh, the Master mm. with the uh, overhead shots of the water and also mm. just the relationship between a a like a student and a teacher. I think that what will be the most interesting thing for me come Christmas is how much if Force Awakens was basically beat for beat Star Wars. Uh, a New Hope, how much does uh, Last mm-hmm. Jedi hue to the Empire Strikes Back and, playbook? And we already have the Yoda training. Basically. Yeah, we have the training, but we also have the could he be the father figure, no Mori. You know, like, is right. what is Luke Skywalker's relationship to Rey, and is there a betrayal? Because they are definitely teasing the idea that Luke has... Uh, Luke is done with Jedis. Yeah, like, well, he's done with Jedis to the extent that he might be about to do something about that. To, to the Jedis. Yeah. Um, so that's interesting. Uh, so I, I hope that this film is a lot like The Master. Yeah. And I also do hope this film is a lot like Empire Strikes Back. I The last thought I have about this is the poster for the movie, which was also released. Yeah, I think super is, uh, Last Starfighter I, I John Carpenter. It. I think it's yeah. the single, I'll use the word beautiful again. I think it's the most beautiful thing affiliated with any of this rejuvenated Star Wars yeah. universe. I think it is gorgeous and exciting and understated and Classy, and you know, I, I know this sounds like I'm talking about. Um, I know I sound like Ron Burgundy talking about San Diego, but I just want these movies to be classy. I think they'll be classy. I think I, there's also like even the uh, aerial battle or the space battle that they show briefly in the in the teaser, like just looks like it's up a level. They, you're, you're right. The the smoke coming out of the back of the the X wings as they kind of streak along the landscape. That's really beautiful to look at. I, a- I just think it'll be really good. I'm just. I they have a lot of things to to fit together here. Yes. This isn't unlike the sort of Avengers problem that they have where they're mm-hmm. like, man, mm-hmm. there's like 10 major roles here and two hours of screen time, also, two and a half hours of screen time. let's remember um, they had, you know, basically almost, they had 30 years to... To get Force Awakens right. To yeah. get Force Awakens right. And when the smoke cleared, you know, and you look at that movie, you're like, they kind of made it up as they went along. That's almost why having Rogue One come right after it and this come right after Rogue One, you don't have a lot of time to dwell on whether Force Awakens makes sense or not. But you also don't have a lot of time to sort of try and fix the core storytelling errors that maybe you've embarked upon. You know, I mean, we just have agreed as a culture to be like, man, Force Awakens was fun and not worry about what happened with um, uh, Digital Lupita, like that whole scene. Yeah. With the sky, with the Skywalker lightsaber, and the I, I will be fascinated. So, I want to see. I, I can't. I, they still did books like this, and it's harder and harder for them to do it, just because there's so much money on the line. But it, some kind of expose, like the one that was written about a uh, Heaven's Gate or something. It, Force Awakens was obviously not a disaster, but the fact that there was like pretty much fully a script of Force Awakens mm-hmm. that was circulating, that mm-hmm. was like Luke's hand drifting yeah. down from outer space and landing on the ground, all this stuff that was like. They redid that movie in a lot of ways. While they like, were making it. While they were making it, I mean, it, yeah. they did plan. They had Michael Arndt writing the screenplay for a long time. And then within basically 18 months, J.J. Abrams came on. Lawrence, Lawrence Kasdan, Kasdan came yeah. on. They redid all of it. Yeah. Um, and it and it worked because, I mean, it works as far as they care about things working, which is the box office receipts. But the, the other thing I would keep an eye on in the Star Wars world going forward is 
speaks to a larger collision between um, a larger collision at, at the cinema in terms of what we want, right? Because do we want to have great movies that show us new exciting things, mm-hmm. or do we want to be fanboys and have fun? And I'm curious about the reaction to the Last Jedi and its ambitions, and the reaction to the Han Solo movie. Because I got to say, I was pretty suckered in to like that first photo from the Han Solo movie. Lord and Miller are incredibly clever. They are not like auteurs, but they're kind of brilliant in what they do. The cast is terrific. Um, Alden Ehrenreich and um, uh, Donald Glover and Phoebe Waller-Bridge from Fleabag. I mean, it's it's a great cast. Mm-hmm. And the picture of them, they they all look like, look what we're doing. We're fucking making a Han Solo movie. Isn't that fun? Yeah. And that immediately lowers the stakes, but in some ways maybe raises the um, Maybe that's an inescapable... At part of like just movie blogs and well, just reading them, though. it is. But yeah. I'm just saying that like one movie seems to it seems more likely to succeed because its ambitions are lower and because it seems to be aiming directly at pleasing the fanboys and girls that make up the movie going audience these days. Whereas Last Jedi might be caught in this uncanny valley that Force Awakens was, which is: Are we going to make a great new story for a new era, or are we just going to remake the old? Well, movie? Well, in, in retrospect, that might have been the issue with Rogue One too, right? Because they had such a tight. No, well, I don't know if it was tight, but they had such a self-contained story that was like this is no there's yep. no fur, there's no future ramifications there's no way that like these characters can really live on beyond the walls of the yep. story and then at the very end they bring in they they do the on-ramp to Star Wars but like almost 90% of the people who saw that movie would be like the best part of Rogue One is the last 15 That's minutes. That's the part people loved. Yeah. So uh, it'll be, it'll be, I'll, be, I'll be curious to see the full trailer for this. I have huge, huge high hopes for Ryan Johnson yep. making one of these movies. And the fact that there has been no, like, is there something wrong with Last Jedi? What's going on with Last Jedi? Like, almost uniformly, everybody who's worked on well, it has just been like, it's going to be a great movie. Well, let's also say, before we move on, Ryan Johnson is almost the last of an era because he's he's our age, I think. Mm-hmm. And he made uh, Brick... And he made the Brothers Bloom. He's and clearly Looper, yeah. and Looper, and he's clearly an incredibly talented filmmaker, just on a purely and some of the best Breaking Bad episodes. Some of the best Breaking Bad episodes. Very talented on a technical level. Clearly, very indebted to genre filmmaking. If he made his debut movie, Brick, five years later, he would have been making um, Ant Man. Ant Man, yeah. exactly. But instead, he sort of kept trying to make original ideas and force them through, and he got one through in Looper. Um, so, J.J. Abrams is. Well, we all know J.J. Abrams is. Trevorrow got on-ramped to the system much quicker. Yeah. Ryan Johnson has a track record, and he's sort of one of the last people that can slide in and have the experience and also be exactly suited to I think to he also movie. is somebody who's going to understand that um, the thing that made Star Wars brilliant in the first place isn't the spectacle, it's the story, and it's the emotional attachment people had to the moments that were happening, yeah. and it's not uh, you know, an explosion, it's a one-liner. You know, it's not it's not some it's it's the fact that nobody quotes back scenes where something explodes people unless it's like, let's blow this thing and get out of here, kid or whatever. Yeah. It's it's lines that people exchange with one another while they're like playing a board game, you know, in, in Star Wars. And that I think he is going to remember that. And I think mm-hmm. he's going to have like hopefully there will be like a lot of like moments like that rather than just like and then a planet blew up. But who who got who got screenwriting? I mean, I guess they haven't announced officially, but who, he wrote it. He wrote this movie. Mm-hmm. Are we sure? Like there's no, no supposedly written and directed by Ryan Johnson. No secret Kasdan's got involved. I'm sure or? like Macquarie and Kasdan and all Mike, the usual like, you know, like that hundred people probably took a pass at different Kinberg parts. and yeah. anyone else who passed through Bad Robot. But I think that he probably like I think that he That's came on. And I think he's writing ten. He's so he's or nine rather. Yeah. 
It's interesting. I thought. I mean, I, I mean, I could be wrong. You could check. We'll Google it during yeah. the break. Um, okay, so let's talk a little bit about the Kendrick record that came out on Friday. I got, I got, I got, I got loyalty, got royalty inside my DNA. Cocaine quarter piece, got war and peace inside my DNA. I got power, poison, pain, and joy inside my DNA. I got hustle, though, ambition, flow inside my DNA. A lot of culture, Chris. Tons. This is prime time. Tons, man. Good thing nothing's happening in sports for yeah. you, right? So... Kendrick Lamar released his fourth studio album, I believe. Yep. Uh, damn. damn. On, on uh, late Thursday night, after like kind damn. of like some delay. That wasn't even delayed. It was just people thought it was going to come out the prior th- Friday. There were even rumors that a second album was going to come out on Sunday for Easter. People I, are talking. Yeah. Uh, there was like Reddit threads speculating that like he had left clues to suggest that there was a second album coming. Um, why don't you go first on this one? I love this record. Okay. I love it. I think it's terrific. I got to tell you, Chris. I'm tired of uh, surprise album drops. I'm tired <laughs> of it. This wasn't that big of a surprise. No, no, it was coming from no, no, a week. No, but I, what I'm saying is this. In the scheme of things, yeah. um, it's overplayed now as uh-huh. a technique, as a tactic. Um, it is a smokescreen often to make the event, like movies, basically. Mm-hmm. It's a smokescreen to make the box office receipts and the attention and the need, the, the fear of missing out dominate the conversation. And then weeks later, when we when we actually analyze the work, we can discuss whether it's deserving of all that hype or not. But then by then, we've moved on to something else. Uh, I'm tired of, you know, jamming half-developed thoughts about records onto microphones. And then, like with Frank Ocean, then being like forgetting that the record came out because I didn't really like it that much, it turned out. Do you um, think that that's because of the way the records are released or the way that we listen to records? Well, it's both. It's, it's, it's both. And I'm saying that. Well, it's a prelude to say Kendrick is worth it. Kendrick is deserving of it. Kendrick is a generational artist. I feel like he is, everything he does is worthy of attention. I feel like he grabs the steering wheel of, certainly of music and maybe of culture as a whole every time he comes out and he appreciates the moment and he rises to it. And in in, in the spirit of what I'm talking about, To Pimp a Butterfly is probably a masterpiece but it is a very naughty, intense, uh, demanding album. Mm-hmm. It is not well served by a quick hot take or three listens and then discussing it. I still get lost in it, frankly, when I go back to it. Um, this is the record that I really wanted him to make, I think, in a lot of ways, because I think it synthesizes his completely idiosyncratic approach to everything. I think the, the beats and the music could not be used or could not could not be supported by any other artist, mm-hmm. um, but it also knocks, and it also is insistent, and it isn't um, it doesn't get lost in search of itself. It is very focused, and I feel like you could see that in the record title, in the t- track titles, in the relative brevity of it um, compared to a lot of records these days. I think it is really powerful, exciting, funny, moving, surprising record, and it's. Uh, it deserves it. I, I, I was just totally, totally taken with it, you know. And I and, and and I say this, I was kind of prepared to be like, okay, listen, number four, let's go. Yeah, let's let's, so let's, let's find these I gems. I think that it's okay to say like, Kendrick can sometimes feel a little bit like homework. Yeah, partially his because records, of it, not his. Every time no, he no. approaches a microphone, you pay attention. Yes, and I basically like he's like watching like Kendrick, like every Kendrick flow is different in its own special way, and there is like a like a sheer like 
if you like rap music, every time Kendrick approaches a microphone, like you're saying, every time a song begins, I'm almost on pins and needles, not for what he's going to say, which is obviously revelatory and deep and psychologically probing and like emotionally honest. But I am on a formal level, just like super fascinated to hear his flow, yes. like the way that he is going to jump in and out of. Uh, of of beats, the way he ends bars, the way he like uses bars to set up next bars, like all the technical stuff that if you've been listening to rap for as long as you and I have, like you're just like I didn't think that there were like new ways to do this or new ways to make me feel mm-hmm. about rapping, and it and it's pretty cool that he has done that in a way that like I could give a shit about traditionalism. I mean, I love. Um, Young Thug, as much as like I love any dude who's out here trying to like be Captain Von Bars, but it's cool that he is doing something so traditional and making it sound so breathtakingly new. Like that is fucking hard we, we, right we, now. You and I have lived through enough uh, rap fandom to experience the same conversations and arguments in that genre that we have with rock, where people. I remember like being a kid and people there there's always the, there was always the kid like in high school or probably at camp who's just like yeah like I I REM is REM is kind of cool but Steve Vai man like Steve Vai can fucking shred yeah. like that dude can play the guitar yeah. let's see Peter fucking Buck do that and I'm like no thanks you know what I mean like it, music yeah. fandom and it's not being good technically doesn't always matter. Yeah, like, I remember when I was like in, like in in the eighties, like when I first started getting into music, and the music to get into was hair metal, and like so I would like it was like, you know, like trying. So I bought like Circus, and yeah. I would like ask older metal kids like what they liked, and they were like, "If you don't like Randy Rhodes, you're a bitch." And I was just like, "Oh man, this sucks! Like I hate this! Like I like Poison because the songs are do, fun." Do you remember? Do you remember the, the kid who's always like holding up a copy of Joe Satriani surfing with the alien? Just I didn't like, have that there's many. There's truth in this. I didn't have that many musos. I had like lots of dudes who were just like, yeah. "I fucking shred, dog." So the point being that exists in rap too. It yeah, always has, absolutely. and there were always the people absolutely. who were like, "Enjoy your Jay Z party rap," you know. But like for real though, like these dudes, the dudes who have bars, yeah. like. That dude seems like the the teacher from Freaks and Geeks now. But do you, <laughs> I know. But like, who who would they be pushing? Like Freestyle Fellowship or something? Or like, um, I think that there was like a period of time where, and it was unfortunate for the guys on this label because they oh, were yeah, yeah. so like just every time you ask them about this, they would just be like, "I swear to God, that's not what we're about." But in the backpacker rap era yeah. of the early two thousands of like Def Jux, and you had like Aesop and Camu Tao and Cannibal Ox and you know, LP, people were like, this is that real rap. It's the real rap. This yeah. is the real take it back to the basics, fundamentals, like rap. And then also like the production is like, it's so cool because it's Ilbian. And it's like, these guys were just making the music they wanted to make and it happened to kind of fit mm-hmm. together. And then they obviously like, when you would go see LP live in the early 2000s, he would just rap over just Blaze instrumentals. Like, it's not like <laughs> they were like, we don't like Rockefeller. Yeah. And yeah, and it wasn't like, LP rapping over Line Em Up was supposed to be like, I'm doing this better than Freeway. Like, LP would be the first to tell you, like, no one was rapping better than Freeway like that. So it's just like, it is, we're getting off on a a tangent, but it is useful to think about, like, I don't know that there's that binary binary anymore where it's like, no, but what I mean is, there's not always a great history in terms of rappers who are being presented as the next commercial or cultural thing who are also. When it's really about their technical proficiency, Mm -hmm. like, do you remember cannabis? Sure. Like, like cannabis had like mixtape bars, like he had some jokes and he was clever. But you, as soon as they tried to make him like a bigger artist, it's just like this is someone's. Why is he yelling at me? Yeah, you know it's pedantic. Yeah, and I say this to say that maybe only Andre Three Thousand, it 
in addition to Kendrick, has been formally and technically otherworldly and a genius and also able to stunt right. so and I just was, ride on these beats and do things and like adopt the juvenile flow on one of the best tracks. I, I was talking about Kendrick with a friend this weekend. Do you ever get the feeling though, and this is this is not my my take, but or this is I shouldn't take credit for this take because I think it's a very smart one, but do you ever get the feeling with Kendrick like you've like you're listening to Eminem? Like oh, you're watching like, like a you're dude, exhausted? Like you're watching a dude lift weights. I completely understand what you mean, and I have in the past. That's kind of why I didn't get into the Untitled Unmastered record. See, I actually like that record. I know. Maybe, maybe more than this. Wow. I like, I, on this one... I, I'm also in a weird zone right now where I think because of like in, a bunch of different factors, the sociopolitical climate, mm-hmm. the just like whatever, I have more and more been looking to music to get obliterated. Like, I want to just have my wig snatched off mm-hmm. when I listen to what, what is left of my wig. Sure. And I, I like, so my favorite rap record, if not maybe my favorite record of the yeah. year is, is the self-titled future record. Yeah. And now this is particularly bullshit for me considering I just was here Thursday being like, Father John Misty's lyrics are so appropriate hey, for this I, time period. I, I haven't listened. But I do feel like more often than not, like I want to get punched in the face when I listen to music. And yeah. that's sometimes Kendrick's like incisive, like, you turn it on and it's just like, here's the thing about my dad. And you're like, fuck, dude, I just want to, I just kind of want to get like punched. But that's why I do think this, I think this is a very punchy record. I think that um, there's a, tr- the track Lust on here is really, I, see, this is, this is, I start to sound like these, these, like the backpacker dudes from the early 2000s. So I was about to say, this song is very powerful. You know? <laughs> like it's really important, but it, it, that's really reducing it. Because yeah. when he does these narratives about people just trying to, like, live their lives and the election comes into it, right. you know, and there's an empathy to what he's doing. And it's not like reportage, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's just storytelling in people's lives. And it feels very of the moment and feels very personal. But then he talks about TED Talks, you know, and, and Grey Poupon. And I feel like he found a synthesis with this record where Mike Will Made It is on it. Doesn't really sound like other Mike Will Made It tracks. There's definitely some jazzy stuff in there, but it's not just, like, Thundercat noodling. Yeah. Um, this is, I mean, he, he just has this ability right now to understand what to do with people and with lyrics and with beats. He put Rihanna on here, and it's, by the way, it is Italian chef, fingers kiss. It is, is like. Is that your favorite emoji of the year? Yes. It is the, it is new muso Rihanna, because we know Rihanna is now in like yeah. her artiste period. Yeah. And he has Rihanna on here just rapping. Yeah. Which is the best use of Rihanna in 2017. I love this new, like, speaking of things that got fixed in post, like, <laughs> the Rihanna album, Anti, which is great. Yeah. Like, everyone's like, oh, she's finally embracing becoming an artist, you know, she's not chasing the charts. Bullshit. Like, that album was a disaster that actually worked. Yeah. And that made it interesting. Yeah, you know th- I mean? those are the best kind of albums. She wasn't like, you know, I've done rumors, now I'll make Tusk. Why are we like, doing so many voices She's today? not. <laughs> Who is this guy? I am, I am trying to goad you into doing your Portuguese missionary voice again, which you haven't done since Deus. December. <laughs> it's, it's there. Step on me. Have you ever seen Silence? Do you know any of these jokes? Uh, it's. I just enjoy your presence okay. and your, um, you know, your spirit of, um, of just. You know, it's infectious <laughs> yeah. when you get excited about a voice. I think this record is 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 incredible and worthy of the hype, and I can't wait to keep listening to it. Yeah. Okay. Let's take a quick do you think break. We could have just ended there. We probably could. Let's take a quick break to hear from our sponsors, and then we'll be back to talk about the finale of Girls and the premiere of Leftovers. 
Today's episode of The Watch is brought to you by Blue Apron. Not all ingredients are created equal. Fresh, high-quality ingredients make a real difference, so it's important to know where your food comes from. Thankfully, for less than $10 a meal, Blue Apron delivers delicious, quality food courtesy of over 150 local farms, fisheries, and ranchers across the U.S. right to your door, supporting a more sustainable food system and setting the highest standards for ingredients. Plus, with Blue Apron's freshness guarantee, you can be sure that every ingredient in your delivery will arrive ready to cook or they'll make it right. It's no wonder they are the number one fresh ingredient and recipe delivery service in the country. This month's meals... Man, I am hungry. Spinach and fresh mozzarella pizza with olives, bell peppers, and ricotta salada. Woo! It's the best kind of ricotta. Sweet and sour salmon with bok choy, carrot, and ginger fried rice. That sounds lovely. Parmesan crusted chicken with creamy fettuccine and roasted broccoli. That cream. A little protein in there. Uh, baby broccoli and fontina paninis with hard-boiled <sighs> egg and arugula salad. Ooh, Blue Apron's not trying to see your adult broccoli. No, they're also not trying to see me uh, not pass out because I just bread it up. Check out the week's menu and get your first three meals free with free shipping by going to blueapron.com slash the watch. You will love how good it feels and tastes to create incredible home cooked meals with Blue Apron. I can't recommend it highly enough. It really got me into cooking as a just life choice. I love Blue Apron. That's blueapron.com slash the watch. Blue Apron. It's a better way to cook. Greenwald, how'd you like to be your own boss and have the power to earn extra money whenever you want? You can get your side hustle on. And yeah. drive with Uber. That's what Esther did. Wow. Your I've been, girl. I've been wondering what Esther's have been up to. Her life changed for the better when she started driving with Uber. And now Esther can spend quality time with her family and still earn extra money. Respect to Esther. When you drive with Uber, you're in control. You can work around your life. No one's telling you when to come in or when to leave. Or asking you to change your plans to come in early or stay late. This is all a subtweeted Zach Mack, our producer. Just turn on the app when you want to work and turn it off when you don't. You decide when and where you want to earn that extra cash. That makes driving with Uber a great fit for just about everyone, especially if your regular schedule is always changing. Mm -hmm. And my favorite part is how Uber's instant pay makes every day payday. You can cash out straight from the app to your bank account up to five times a day. Spend quality time with your family and earn extra cash when you want on your schedule, like Esther. Drive with Uber. Go to uber.com slash drive now and every day can be payday. That's uber.com slash drive now. U-B-E-R dot com slash drive now. Certain restrictions apply. See site for details. I gotta go. I gotta ride waiting out front. You're driving. I'm driving that way. We are back, and Girls is gone. And what better way to market than with two white guys talking about two it? Two guys chatting about girls. Look, you, you, you play the you hand you're dealt. Yep. In life. Um, Let's play it. <laughs> <laughs> Let's play it. Extremely Jake Johnson win it all. Deal me in. Um, Andy, I, you know, you're someone, you talked to Lena uh, a couple weeks ago, I a couple did. months ago, whenever, uh, whenever American Bitch aired. Asterisk, little, little salty that we talked Literally days before the pregnancy plotline was introduced. Oh, yeah. So we never discussed any of that. I had no idea what was coming. Your list of grievances grows. Mm-hmm. Um, She'll be hearing from me. So I, I guess let's talk specifically about the finale episode first, and then we could talk about Girls as a series ap- sure. after that. Okay. Um, I, I uh, like every episode of Girls I've ever watched, mm-hmm. pretty much enjoyed myself. Mm-hmm. I also cackled at least once. I, yeah cracked up at Marnie's like I won friendship uh, <laughs> line um, I'm sad to see the show go I really I mean like for for as um, enraging as it apparently was and for sometimes some. Some, some people I 
always enjoyed myself while watching this show. Uh, so I'm sad to see it go as a, just as like a Sunday night salve. Um, I thought that the very last episode felt very uh, Apatowian or Apatowian. And I know that he had a co-writing credit. Judd Apatow had a co-writing credit. He popped up in the in the after sort of episode chat that that, that Jenny Connor. What was the room they filmed that in? I never watched it. I don't know, but it was weird. There was like a very upstream color water pitcher that nobody ever seemed to be touching, (laughs) nor had anyone seemed to drink anything from it. But they obviously shot... All that stuff in one day. Yeah, I think they filmed it in inside of Marnie's Pinterest board <laughs> of the Union Square apartment she'd like to live in. Yeah, maybe. Um, you know, I don't. I, this is like, it's 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 interesting because like I think that Lena Dunham gets way too much blame for not blame, but she we 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 just really have like over the last few years mixed up whether or not it's a character or her, mm-hmm. whether she thinks things that the mm-hmm. characters in her show are saying mm-hmm. and whether or not she is uh, problematic or not based on those things in a way that we normally do not assign that kind of level of no, responsibility I, I, to primarily I, male show. I was going to say, like, no one thinks that Deadwood is an accurate representation of David Milch's psyche. And then I realized, no, that probably is an yeah, accurate representation right, of his psyche. He right. probably does say cocksucker that much. <laughs> he might. But I don't know. generally... It's unfair, and gen- and, and f- far more often than not, it, that is a sort of ownership ascribed to female creators. Yeah, I will say that um, I enjoy the works of Judd Apatow, but I have a issue personally, like, and, and this could have as much to do with my own personal life as anything else, with the idea— Is it because you were a formula baby? <laughs> I, yeah, I, I couldn't answer that question, to be completely honest. Should we call your mom live on air <laughs> and ask? That's definitely not. <laughs> um, she probably wouldn't answer. Uh, it's— Interesting that, like, he has, there's a tendency within Aptow's works that the only piece for a character comes out of the um, assumption of nuclear family responsibility, Mm -hmm. you know, or family responsibilities, if not nuclear family responsibilities, that basically your moment of clarity comes when you decide to shrug off the... um, uh, the trappings of childhood or your youth Selfishness and you, just, and you realize it. that you know you have like a greater responsibility to this world and that is to be a partner and a parent and um, some of that is comes true at the end of girls and there was a line I think you know they basically said that the um, that that it was Judd's idea to make the latching this mm-hmm. like the main sort of the through line through mm-hmm. this episode um, that being said I thought it was consistent thematically with what girls wound up being about, which was about understanding that your life eventually has consequences. Mm-hmm. And I thought that the Becky Ann Baker stuff in this episode was phenomenal. She was great. And she is also kind of like the secret MVP of the last few seasons of this mm-hmm. show. Uh, people give a lot of credit to the Matthew Reese episode, the Patrick Wilson episode, the Panic in Needle Park episode. But I actually found like the mother stuff to be quite great you know, uh, over the years. And to have kind of this multi-generational situation happening where you had a baby, you had Hannah, you had uh, a friend, mm-hmm. you know, and Marnie, who was sort of the other side of what H- Hannah could have had at the moment. Mm-hmm. And you had Hannah's mom, that there was this really good dialogue about how this stuff trickles down and trickles up mm-hmm. in your life and how you're supposed to, you know, you eventually have to face the judge um, in your life or that. And that's how you make things matter. You, you can play act for a while. You can perform things for a while. But at a certain point, you're not in rehearsals yeah, anymore. You can't exactly. walk away. Exactly. And, uh, that, and that like that the, the even though when you watch it the first time, it just seems like a very odd use of the last 
10 minutes of a, of a show is to have Hannah walking around this town half naked without a real, like, it, you know, it's funny because like they referred to it as like a journey. She went, I was like, it wasn't really much of a journey. She took like, a walk and, mm-hmm. and it was seemed then that she came back, but it was, uh, the act of like the ultimate last act of child, childishness, ch- childishness. Mm-hmm. And immaturity, mm-hmm. and who knows? I mean, obviously, like you could project forward that she will be. The like, show's over, right? Yeah, yeah, right. I I think um, well, here's one of the one of the the the, the downsides of not being a, a critic anymore is that I had a had a whole thought last night. Was excited to share it with you guys, and this morning I was like, let's let's see what the uh, see what the old commentariat's saying, and mm-hmm. I and I fired up our buddy Alan Steppenwall, and the first line of his review is what I wanted to say, so I, I give him credit. Of course, because he's he's always ahead of this stuff. But I did think about how shows end and how shows have been ending now in an era where we pay attention to how shows end very keenly. And like Alan, this reminded me in a lot of ways of, of Breaking Bad. And this is something that we discussed a week or so ago. Oh, anyway, like the two endings. Which is that there are two endings. That the penultimate episode kind of ends the series as we knew it. That was the end of these girls in New York City. Um, and we didn't talk about last week's episode, but I thought especially those last few moments were, were really affecting and, and kind of beautiful and a really appropriate ending to the show, to the show that I think and a lot of us thought the, we were watching. And mirrored the earlier part of the series <clears throat> of the dancing. Yep. They danced to Robin early dancing in the series. Dancing alone, dancing, and now dancing out. And, and I even think out. that like we're just doing our best was, you know, like it ba- was basically like a very kind tagline for the entire series. Yes, exactly right. And then the actual finale becomes almost a coda it's like in the same way that in the same way that traditionally tv pilots were almost filmed as mini movies and then months would pass and they would get a chance to do more mm-hmm. and then the series would more or less begin with the second episode uh this felt like it almost felt like the 10 years later reunion movie that they made they wanted to make a, a short film to put at the end of the sentence um and with that in mind i thought they were a nice pair of episodes that and i appreciated that they did that i i am of two minds about it i I am generally anti-babies on television shows um, because I think partly I, I hear I agree with what you're saying in terms of the the Apatovian nature of it. I wish there were other ways to communicate this stuff, but also because they 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 are so much about what they are and they dominate. You know, it's really you can't introduce a baby and then have room for much else. Right. It, it, I'm sh- and I'm sure you're watching and you're like. She just left her baby behind. Like, and you're, you can't get out of that headspace, right? Like, yeah, especially where I am in my life <laughs> yeah, at the moment. Exactly. Um, I, uh, but I also am thinking about what Jenny Connor and, and Lena probably wanted to do here. And, you know, they had one last bite at the apple and they were like, well, what can we, what more can we say about this character and how far into the forward can we reposition and basically rev her up and point her? Uh, what is the, what is the biggest way we can do that? And with limited real estate left when they decided to do it, adding the baby definitely hits fast forward on all the maturity buttons they wanted to press on the character. Mm-hmm. So I understand why they did that in terms of what they wanted to say, even though I took issue with sort of how it played out in a lot of ways during the season. Um, I think I think it was actually, uh, the, as a finale, it was kind of beautifully understated and very well put together, very well considered, very well shot. I think that what you, what you pointed out about the idea of a journey, and they mentioned this in the after thing talk too, you sort of see the occasional divide between um, intention and then actual Absolutely. execution. Absolutely. I think Jenny Connor says, well, we knew she would go on a walk, and we had a lot of versions of what she would encounter on the walk. It sounded like almost like maybe other 
characters that you know because like I, I almost wonder whether there's like a Jessa cameo or something where or, or at least in the room they had they had suggested sure. it. Um, and this was the best version that they had come up with and that sort of speaks to just how TV gets made in general um, what I really admired about it and this can sort of segue into a discussion about the show in general is if you look at the last season and the last few episodes it what it did in terms of our expectations and in terms of TV history and TV shows ending it's not exactly radical, but it is forceful and it is distinct and it is worthy of much more than respect, I think. It actively resisted one true pairing. Yeah. It actively resisted the idea that Sex and the City, like, this is a magical place where all their dreams are always going to come true. It fundamentally said something that TV just doesn't say, which is, nope. Yeah. This was a period in their lives and they're not actually friends anymore. And it's a particularly complicated uh, line for them in the walk because I feel like, unlike almost any show that's been on since you and I started doing a podcast, this is something that this is a show that a lot of people felt ownership over, or yeah, they, um, they wanted, and, and even not if just they didn't like over. the show. Well, they because everyone, everyone, everyone like us, I would say, a lot of people who lived in New Our York age, City, who lived in New York City in their twenties yeah, or thirties, right. yeah, yeah, wanted to see. We all wanted to see our city reflected in this show to some degree, mm-hmm. even though it was when the show came on, we were older and it wasn't necessarily our city anymore. It never really was going to be that show. I think, you know, finales tell you what the show always was in the eyes of its creators. And this was a show about the journey of one, um, the bumpy journey of one young woman. Yeah. It wasn't really about I mean, She else. says, she says, I'm mentally ill. I isolate people and I'm a quitter. I mean, yeah. she's at the, even at the very end of this series, I think that they were tr- still trying to write. Um, business cards for Hannah to like <laughs> tell people I mean no she's not Carrie Matheson but you're watching someone who is uh, not you know I think that partially because so much of the series is told through her perspective and she, she's the person who kind of determines a lot of courses of action for a lot of other people mm-hmm. you kind of have this feeling that Hannah is the auteur of the show that Hannah is mm-hmm. somehow like the creating this world around mm-hmm. her but I think that they went to great pain sometimes to show just how flawed she was and I, and I think that that was always the yeah. thing because it was written and and sometimes it was often written sometimes directed by the person who is also the star of the show that it is always going to be confused with an act of active egotism yes and that's why I think people had such there was so much confusion about like is this what Lena Dunham is saying about X? But I also think it's worth noting that the show is u- uniquely uh, suited to receiving that kind of scrutiny and criticism because, as Lena herself would admit, she made the show in an act of enorm- during a period of enormous transition and artistic development in her own life. So the show that she threw together at the beginning, which we've said many times over the last few years, sometimes seemed at war with itself over it, whether it even wanted to be a TV show. By the time we got to the end of it, these last few episodes, what we saw glimpses of was what I believe to be the show that maybe she kind of wanted to be making all along, which is a show where Hannah and um, Elijah live together because they're the closest friends. And Hannah has some confidence, has some belief in her abilities, has some ground under her feet. Yeah, That show and the people she would meet in that show and the adventures they would go on. I mean, that was the, like Shoshana was basically not on the season of television. And they and I loved the way they had nodded to that. In the in the um, penultimate episode, mm-hmm. she's like, "No, I, I have new friends now. That's where I've been. I'm living a life in the city, and I have new friends, and I have a fiance, and that's what I'm doing. I'm not on pause." That episode was also dominated by just more Hannah and Elijah. I'm like, "This this guy's not a girl. Yeah. This guy wasn't even the show in the beginning." And I think that, that so, the only time that actually bothered me was that 
in 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 a way that's very much like because I like really enjoyed Jemima Kirk and Adam Driver Mm -hmm. as performers was the Adam and Jessa stuff and the fact that I felt like that was very natural, uh, enjoyable and interesting relationship Mm -hmm. that then got warped and wrapped around Hannah again. And end of season, end of series politics that we needed like one last Adam and Hannah moment. And I actually think that it would have been fine if like they had bumped into each other and had that day. And then and then Adam went home at the end of the day, but hadn't announced in the beginning of the day that he mm-hmm. was going to go find Hannah yep. and like raise her baby. Like that would have like, girls was great when girls was about how you could. I think Gia Tolentino wrote about this in New York in the New Yorker actually about how you disappear into the city mm-hmm. and how you can just disappear into a day in New York. And there were, were great episodes where characters did that, like the the panic episode, yeah. um, like and that would have been the, the, really cool. The, the Staten Island episode, the Cracksident yeah. episode, yeah. And I always loved the show best. I think when it was at its most New York. Um, in terms of what's possible mm-hmm. and the way the city can make you feel and can warp your, your relationship with everything that you thought you knew. Um, I, I do think it's worth noting, too, that the show, this is a show, I think, now that it's now that it's in the rearview mirror, I don't think you can hold this up as, people aren't going to be like, put this on Mount Rushmore because it has X, Y, and Z seasons that are just perfect television. But what what it gave us and some of the things that it confronted us with and chose to, to, to play with and some of the some of the L's it caught, some of the mistakes it made yeah. are truly um, important for the development of TV as an artistic medium. I really believe also that. Also, the mix of and, drama and comedy that I think we now take as comedy yeah, and, and, was, was pretty fresh for television when that came on. And I think that what it tried to do at the end in terms of the voice, the, 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 the ideas and emotions that it gave voice to in terms of... Um, the limits of female friendship versus the importance of female friendship and relationships, mothering as an idea, um, you know, how you value your self-worth in, in, in how these female characters do is really is, is radical mm-hmm. and still is and is and is noteworthy and shocking. I mean, and people can say like, oh, well, she was just trying to, to make us react when she has the scene where she yells at Marnie while wearing the Ghostbusters um, uh, uh, breast pumps. But it's like those things exist. That's real. That's a real thing. And she put it on TV and made it funny and made it actually something that the character was doing. There, there is value in being, being a provocateur in that way, even when I think your goal is not just to provoke. Um, but I think overall, I think it really speaks to who Lena Dunham is as a creator and artist, not as the Twitter headline bait person, that the show ended on such a gentle and intimate note. Mm-hmm. That's kind of what the show always was, even as it veered wildly all around. Um, it ended. It ended so gently. I always found the show I, pleasantly surprising. I, I yeah. I, I really I, I really appreciated that 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 choice. Um, I do have to say, very curious about her um, professorship salary that afforded this fucking Ethan Allen <laughs> slash Ethan Frome mansion. I guess the on bottom dropped out in the Tivoli housing market. <laughs> That's a real nice house. Yeah, and it was like. Real renovated. She also just like caught a dope job at Bard. Like that's, do they hand them out? I mean, again, these are the things that it's a TV show. These yeah. are the things where it's like, we got to get her from A to B. So let's just do it. Yeah. Let's just own it. We'll put Ann Dowd in some funny rings and we'll ever say some stuff and we'll move on. But I felt like, could they have gotten like an unre- a non-refurbed, you know, colonial? Yeah. Like, I maybe just an apartment like downtown. That took me a little bit out of it. But, but let's also celebrate one last thing. She had this little moment of connection and latching and peace and learn some stuff. 
But the show never pretended that things were going to get better or easier. No. And also, look at Marnie. Yeah. Like, <laughs> Mar- Marnie's kind of in a low place at the end of the show, and they're fine with that. She she only has she can only go up from here. The, the, the segue before we get because we're going to move into the leftovers. She's going to love Weehawken. This, <laughs> I, mean, I I appreciated the show. Is like maybe she's not a genius. Maybe she's just kind of trashy. Like I like that. Um, the the. Uh, the, the the speech that Becky Ann Baker gives to 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 Hannah that sets her off on this journey, it's where she's just like, emotional pain is what everyone has every day. It doesn't get better. Mm-hmm. Is kind of the subtext or just the text text of the leftovers too, and hey. and I think that those are both very interesting. The Segway Prince who was promised just well, came through. But for real though, this that is a very grown up idea. Yes, it is a very contemporary idea and one that we all have to struggle with and live with in our own ways. And I think I'll say, I'll use I statements. Like I, I have often thought of life as like, well, if only you do X, Y, and Z thing, then we're going to get to the place where you're yeah. happy. Yeah, yeah. And it's not that. Um, that's me just dropping knowledge at minute 47 or whatever of the podcast. That sort of um, emotional discomfort has traditionally played better in movies because then you leave in that weird kind of middle place, like the end of The Graduate or Michael Clayton, and then sure. you go home. sure. It's harder to play on TV, which people generally turn to for comfort and for lulls at the end of a day. We are now in an era where TV is wading deep into those waters. Um, Girls left us with that. The Leftovers is that. And it's particularly impressive in the cases of these two shows that they manage to be entertaining and have lulls, considering they they are treading on emotional minefields and making it, that's where they're setting up the stage. So the best thing about last night's first episode of the season three of The Leftovers, and we'll have a mega Leftovers pod next Monday for folks to listen to with Damon Lindelof, mm-hmm. where we talk to him about the first two episodes, is um, how lived in it feels. And it's lucky to feel lived in because it would have been a pretty big deal if they had canceled it after one season, but there was no guarantee that the second season was going to so drastically improve mm-hmm. from the first season. And in the third season, uh, everything from the way that Mimi Letter directs the episode, which is very handheld, but also the acting feels very naturalistic. And even the gestures that I think people used to mock, like Kevin smoking, um, are all feel like of a piece of this character. He smokes. You know what I mean? When he gets stressed out, he smokes. And um, the interactions between the characters all feel like not like an ensemble where they're like, we have 10 people and there's like a B plot. It's like, no, like... He's going through a day in the life in this town, going into different rooms where there are different people, all of whom know him in different Mm -hmm. ways, and it all tracks. So outside of all the biblical stuff, outside of all the doomsday apocalypse stuff, outside of the rapture, all that, um, it... It's crazy how that this 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 season begins not only with like another friggin' flashback into you know the this sort of puritanical time of of of, of a cult, mm-hmm. but then hits hard reset on the thing that had been bothering people the most mm-hmm. about this show by hitting the guilty remnant with a drone strike. Strike. Now I assume that they are that there's a possibility that we could see them again in some capacity. Well, those, yeah. But one thing about The Leftovers is characters can reappear because sure. the, we, the afterlife it, is a thing. Yeah. But I do wish we could have just been flying the wall on Damon's, like, between seasons, like, hiatus phone call with Liv Tyler where he's like, so good. I just need your, one close-up of you inhaling a yeah, cigarette. Coming and back. Peace. Like, <laughs> the white suit still fits, but then we are shooting a missile in your yeah. face, and that's it. A um, couple things here. Um... I've never done a 180 on a show more than on this show. 
I hated the first season. My hatred of it is well documented on the website www.grantland.com. I stand by my reviews. It the, sh- the first season upset me in a very deep way, made me angry, which is actually an emotion that's connected to love. So I did think it was playing with something that bothered me. I was overly upset about it. I didn't just say, nah. I mean, it wasn't like Iron Fist. Like, this show got me, but it made me upset. I remain dazzled by what uh, what Damon and all of his collaborators did to basically just turn the, do- turn the knob and let the light in, let the weirdness in, and make the show feel like make this funereal show feel like a wake basically mm-hmm. um it is a wild crazy insane um show about death and loss i mean it just makes raspberries at the afterlife that's what the show is now and it's very very emotional and very effective and pretty brilliant um to your point to go back into this world of like old friends all of a sudden whoever would have thought that the show would have felt welcoming like you'd be happy to be around these lunatics again but then to see where they've gone where they've changed you know the the completely coincidental things they've named their horses. You know, I, I, I found that very welcoming and exciting. Yes. Um, you mentioned the opening flashback. I do have to say, and um, I don't think we got into this with Damon, so we should say it now. I was told, I have it on good authority from Damon and from my buddy Patrick Somerville, who worked on the show. They tried to get us again. Like, there's they're on record that they made partly, partly that Clan of the Cave Bear opening in season two so that we would talk about how much we hated it. You they, and were, I. they were trying to bait us. Yes. I hated it. I fell for it. The the second, second one or the season. first second season? Sorry, guys. I like this one. And I don't know whether that's because I like the show now or I'm just ready to go along the journey or I like the soundtrack choice, which actually is. Turns out to be they chose this song that's from the 70s from a, basically a cult Christian folk mm-hmm. band. But I loved the way it, the character literally rolled into our current situation. Like, it, it felt more of a piece. Did you, did you buy the opening of the season? Did you enjoy it? Yeah, I thought it was thematically... It, it's it's talking about how eternal and uh, timeless the questions of this show mm-hmm. are. And I think you could make a lot of arguments about some of the plot mechanics of the show still being a little bit janky. You know what I mean? And, you know, whether or not it's okay to introduce something like the guilty remnant and then you sort of be like, that's the, the like the answer is there is no answer mm-hmm. about that. But the f- core ideas of the show, which is, um, is there a heaven and would you feel better or worse knowing that there is mm-hmm. and, and you didn't get in? <laughs> mm-hmm. Or would you rather that there is no heaven and that there is just this unexplainable void that all these people went to and actually nothing matters? And it, that is a question that I think uh, is timely and um, and is uh, and they they answer it in a ways that are true to the characters on the show. So Nora mm-hmm. and her obvious way of dealing with it and then there is the surface way that you kind of deal with that in your everyday life we talked about girls and we talked about like the you know consequences and responsibilities of adulthood and then you may be able to get through every moment of your day as like the sheriff of a small town where you're basically helping every other person Mm -hmm. and then you need to put a plastic bag over your head to feel anything (laughs) and that is still where this show is for sure this is a show where a woman put on a bulletproof vest and had a prostitute shoot her for kicks it always has been that show yeah and that's just gonna be what this thing is what I think about the show, what I think is brilliant about the show is that you said it. I mean, this is a show. When you say this is a show where characters have to live with an unexplainable void at the heart of everything they do, that show is called Reality on Planet Earth for all of us, whether Donald Trump is president or yeah, not. That's absolutely. just true. Yeah, and it can be uncomfortable to, to embrace, but the show has found a way to basically dramatize a 
deeply personal, deeply internal psychological struggle that I think is universal and able to do it in a way that feels appropriately hopeful and appropriately sarcastic about whatever it is it's going to find. Um, but I will say there may be people who are still listening to this podcast who were out on season one who are just haven't watched it at all. And I would say just if you want to put on your your um, TV 101 visor, go back to TV school, there's a reason to watch the show for that alone. I think, first of all, I don't think we, we, we hadn't officially said it, but I want to give the show the belt. I think it is the, the most essential and most important show on TV right now. And purely from a technical perspective, I think what the show does that is truly remarkable is that it is um, big in scope, widescreen in scope, and painfully intimate, and manages to to speak between to speak to the the relationship between those two perspectives. And um, our colleague Lindsay Zolez has a brilliant profile of Mimi Leader, who's the director who is technically responsible for a lot of that. And so it's worth reading that piece and considering it purely from just how she frames shots and how the world exists on the leftovers in season two versus season one when she came on. But just watch the scene work. Yeah, man. There are throwaway character beats on this show that um, would dominate it, would be enough for an episode on other shows. Just just from the I completely three, agree. I completely the, agree. When you see John and, um, and what's their name? Um, uh, Lori? Amy, Amy, yeah, John and Lori's racket, what they're doing, and the way they interact with each other, and you remember the fortune telling, and you see the money shredder. These are throwaway things on the show. These are just details mm-hmm. that they crafted because, and as we talked to Damon about, you'll hear next week, like just the way they work in the room. It is the goal, I think. Allison was saying in the office, office that like this show's one of its greatest gifts is how little it insults the intelligence of its audience. This show is packed. Mm-hmm. I mean, I will continue to complain about 50, 55, 60 minute episodes of TV, but The Leftovers packs them with details, with moments, with grace notes. Um, that can really only come from, I think, the idealized version of a writer's room where everyone is collaborating, the best idea wins, but there's a sure hand on the wheel that's like, okay, but we got to tell the story. Okay, so... so I, watch it, guys. It has the belt. We'll talk Thursday about Fargo. Uh, yeah, and Return Veep. of Fargo. Yeah, probably Fargo and Veep. And, and then uh, I, I might squeeze a little Billions, solo Billions talking on there. And then... Uh, Letter from the Billions vault. Next Monday... We have a special with Damon Lindelof talking about the first two episodes of Leftovers. So that's really exciting. Uh, Thanks for listening. Great job, Bransky. Thanks again to Uber for sponsoring today's episode. Enjoy the power of earning extra money whenever you want. Get your side hustle on and drive with Uber. No one will tell you when to come in or ask you to work late. It's great. It's a great fit to anyone whose regular schedule is always changing. Sign up today at uber.com slash drive now.